So we pick up in the book of Timothy, um, and why this book is timely for our community is kind of like, as in Paul's experience in doing a pastoral handoff to Timothy, our church, in God willing, not too long, is going to be doing a pastoral handoff as well. Now, I will say this, hopefully our pastoral handoff is a little bit better than Paul's. I mean, you've got to put this in perspective. Paul is in a Roman prison. He's rearrested as part of a movement to persecute Christians. Um, this time he finds himself with no hope for getting out. He feels like this is the end. He's in a cold cell. He needs a coat. He's bound in chains. Uh, he's been abandoned by virtually everyone close to him, and, and hopefully that's not the feeling of where our church is at in the next coming months when we bring in the new guy, you know what I'm saying? Interesting uh, commentary, Ray Steadman said this about the book of Timothy. He said, as Paul wrote to his young son in the faith who was troubled by a weak constitution, right? He had stomach problems, a fearful spirit, and a timid outlook in life. By intense persecution and challenges far beyond his natural power to, to handle, Paul realized that he himself was about to depart to be with the Lord and that he was passing the torch to this younger man. The word from the Apostle Paul's pen is the last that we have from him, and it constitutes his swan song, his last words of exhortation, which are particularly appropriate to the times that we live in. Now, you've got to think, if you lived in the first century and you were, you were thinking about Jesus and his words, Jesus is, you know, the coming Messiah here to save the whole world, you wouldn't think of starting Act 2 with your major, like, visionary leader in jail about to die, passing it off to a guy who's got stomach problems, which, let's be frank, in, in that time in the world made even, like, traveling and maybe even preaching kind of a problem. Um, and then you find out he's timid in spirit. Like, that, that doesn't sound like act two to, like, conquest of the world and redemption of the entire planet to me, but that's where we find ourselves. And it's a testament to the message the 2,000 later, years later, we're able to look back at this letter and be like, wow, well, that actually worked in a lot of ways. Paul has four things he says to this young man, four charges or exhortations that he gives him. One is guard the truth. The second is be strong in the Lord. The third is avoid traps and pitfalls along the way. And the fourth is preach the word. If we had to do a pastoral handoff today and give some good advice, those would be four good points to start with. Let me dive into Scripture now with us. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Jesus Christ our Lord. That word there for beloved is agapeto. Agapeto, does that sound like a Christian word that we know? Sounds kind of like agape, right? My beloved, agapeto, son, child in the Lord. Uh, my first point is that Paul starts his letter with a sense of pastoral love. Paul starts his letter with a sense of pastoral love, and I would add to that even affection. He goes on and says, I thank God whom I serve as I did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers and uh, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy and reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, 
which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul begins this letter in that very pastoral stone. Tone. Three of the things I've highlighted from there are, I remember you constantly as I pray. I'm reminded of your sincere gift, and I want you to fan that into flame. No doubt that Paul's starting this letter, Paul's writing letter often, often into responses that he hears from people, but he's writing this letter likely into, in relation to some suffering that Timothy is experiencing. It's interesting, we don't think of our pastors like suffering, do we? Yet Paul Tripp says in his book, Instruments in the Hand of the Redeemer, we don't like to think about it, but we live in a world where suffering is common. We are all suffering sinners, and that is the only thing we share with everyone that we meet. See, this, this first paragraph starts out talking about, like, about Timothy and his crying. Can you imagine that, pastoral meeting? You, you've planted a church, you've restored a church, you've sent it off. And then sometime later, the, you greet the pastor, and he's crying. He's crying. I mean, like, i got to be frank, there's a whole lot of things that the first century church didn't necessarily have going for them that we do today. Number one, there's not really a model of what healthy church looks like, right? Like, if you get all sideways, you can't call the pastor next door and be like, hey, what are you doing to reach people? What's your outreach? Where's your building? Like, a lot of those things aren't happening. Another challenge, like, get this. The New Testament hadn't been conformed yet, right? Like you're still teaching out of the Old Testament how this New Testament faith is and trying to reveal the mystery of Jesus as the Messiah, but not the liberating Israel kind of Messiah, the spiritual liberating Messiah who's come to set the whole earth free, but died and raised again. And we saw him really like look at these scriptures, like that's got to be kind of a challenge. On top of that, I can tell you firsthand they, didn't, they weren't even able to get a report from Vital Church, right? Like there was nothing like that, no, no, senates, no summits to refocus the church, no discipleship plan, no ministry implementation model, like none of that. They had to kind of figure it out on the fly. You know what? There's days coming where I believe, as our world's changing very quickly, I mean, we've seen this a little bit with COVID, like pastors are going to have to figure out stuff on the fly, in addition to all the jobs they inherit, like, oh my gosh, who's, here's a whole new paradigm with how we deal with the world. And in Timothy's case, that was a lot for him to handle. I, I had the pleasure of uh, catching up with a friend of mine this week. He's, he's a pastor who actually left doing uh, ministry in the church and moved into denominational leadership. Um, and I was able to ask him why, you know, like how'd that, how'd that process go for you? And it was interesting because he was able to share to me, with me some intimate things about how hard it was for his family, right? So to give you his timeline, he was a guy who felt called to ministry, met a lovely young godly lady. They got married, did a couple of pastorates, and a couple things happened. Number one was um, she discovered she loved the Lord, but didn't really feel called to be a pastor's wife. Like, it was more work than relief to be around the church. And every once in a while, you'll find somebody who's extraordinarily gifted in that and on fire to come help their husband who's hired in the church. Like, you almost get, like, two employees for one kind of thing. But that's more rare than anything else. 
Like, that's, that's really a gift. That's not an expectation uh, that's fair to have. And the other thing that she discovered, well, I'll, I'll say it this way. I've, I've heard it said this way a number of times. Sometimes the pastor's wife can be the most wounded person in the church. Because you've got to think about this. If somebody says anything about her, it hurts her. If somebody says anything about her husband, it hurts her. If people say things about her, how her kids aren't acting right, it hurts her. If her kids' clothes are too old, then they don't look nice, then it, you know, some people might say something and it hurts her. And if she buys too nice of clothes, people are like, why am I tithing all this money? And then that hurts her. <laughs> so my friend's wife just had a really hard time with that. She just felt like she never could totally get it right. Never could totally get it right. Then the final straw for him anyways was that um, a leader in the church was lying about him. Ooh. My friend said, I've never seen my wife so mad. I didn't even think she could get that mad. <laughs> it's like, who is this person that I married? Whoa. Glad you're on my side, sweetheart. <laughs> so anyways, he, he discovered kind of the hard way. Like, I have this pastoral gift, but it's not going to work for my family in a local church community. And he's gone on to have a really successful ministry in other areas. But I say this just to, just to have an awareness that as we go to welcome another pastor in here, that we want to welcome them, of course, in his professional and leadership role, but we also want to try to assimilate the family, make them feel at home, make them, love, uh, make them feel loved well. In verse 6, it says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. One commentator said this about this verse, Every talent must be cultivated, right, if it is to be effectively stewarded. Every talent must be cultivated if it's to be effectively stewarded. Paul urged Timothy to flan into flame the gift of God in him, just like athletes or musicians practice to improve their skill. So too must, stew, must servants steward their ability in order to serve God and people as effectively as possible. While we do hope and expect that God has put supernatural gifts into our pastor and into our lives, it's important to remember that part of bringing out those supernatural gifts is through developing them in our natural world as we can. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think of here. I mean, we had a pastor who preached here for 37 years, and many of us may have only caught the back half of those 37 years, right? We walked in, and the pastor had 20 years of experience preaching. Well, think about this. Some of our candidates, like, might not be 37 years old. And we want 40 years of, of preaching experience, you know what I mean? There might be a, a process for him to meet people, find out where we're at, find out our Christianese and our theological positions and preach to us well. There may be a process to that. I wonder if part of Timothy's struggle and emphasis, quite frankly, is people wanting him to be like Paul. Can you imagine that? Like, the Apostle Paul planted your church and then it's like, here you go, fill the pulpit now. Like, is there any pulpit that you, like, less want to fill in your life? <laughs> I mean, it's a great honor, don't get me wrong, Paul started this church. But no matter who you are, you're not Paul. 
<laughs> you're never going to be Paul. You're lucky to be a shadow of Paul. You're never going to measure up. I wonder if part of Timothy's struggle was that, was these unspoken expectations that maybe he could, in being Timothy, just never measure up to. Paul, the bold, you know, visionary missionary, and Timothy's like, ah, I got a stomach problem, and I'm kind of timid. Yet the Lord uses him. We see this, the last letter that Paul writes, act two of the gospel going out to the world. It's Timothy taking over the reins in this part of the world. My second point, we serve an audience of one, but we don't do it alone. We serve an audience of one, but we don't do it alone. Therefore, do not be ashamed about the testimony of the Lord our God, nor of me as prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, the word there, prothesis, prothesis, and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. It's important to remember God's given us all a specific calling in our life and how we're to serve. We're not, you know, to have others make us conform our service to the Lord in their image. I think that's, you know, as the internet has grown up and as a lot more sermons are online, I think it's a temptation for young pastors to feel like, oh, I've got to conform to this other standard. I've got to be like Rick Warren or Chuck Swindoll or you know, pick your pastor, but God has given us each a very specific calling, a purpose, a prophesis in terms of how we're to live our life. Interesting theological detail, it's kind of important, Paul uses the word gospel here as a noun without a qualifier, okay? Check this out. Verse 8, Paul says, we are to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He does not say share in suffering for the proclamation of the gospel, right? There's not a verb associated with that noun. It's just the noun for the gospel by the power of God. Let me give you another scripture that teases out a little bit better what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 9.14, in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Okay, did you notice that? Those who preach the gospel, and it doesn't say should receive their living from preaching the gospel, it just says those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul is using the gospel as sort of an independent clause in a way that it seems like Jesus never did. When Jesus talks about the gospel, in Mark 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions in the age to come in eternal life. So here we see Paul lumping that into one word, the gospel, where Jesus himself says, my name's sake and the message, right, and the gospel. 
Even Christ's disciples said it the way Jesus said it. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. So when Jesus and the disciples use the word gospel, they call it, they use it like a noun, right? It's the message, and they use that qualifier saying proclaiming or sharing, right? Paul uses the gospel as its own independent thing. So this will be important to clear up in your study of theology. The best text to do this with is in chapter 4, so you're going to have to stay tuned for three weeks. I'll come back to this, but the verse goes on, chapter 11. For which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Some of you use these, use these passages here to describe the roles of an elder, right, with a couple of different uh, functions. The preacher as one, and then pastoral care being apostolic growing ministries and teaching the the saints, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, guarding and teaching the doctrine of the church. Verse 12 goes on and says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. It's interesting to note in this epistle how quickly Paul goes from Timothy's tears to, hey, that's a good deposit. I can tell you for certain, nobody who's ever come into my office has, over a period of a paragraph or so, gone from weeping to me being like, oh, that's great for the Holy Spirit in you. Like, that's, that's generally not what they teach you in Pastoral Care 101, right? Somebody comes in crying, you're like, this will be awesome for you, all right? Paul goes very quickly from the sense of, I love you, Timothy, fan these things into flame, to also uh, paralleling that those things you're fanning into flame are a good deposit of the Holy Spirit entrusted in you. I'll point out here that uh, it's been said Paul has been uh, described as having more confidence than concern, more confidence than concern when challenges arise. It's been said about Paul, he is unreservedly committed his body, soul, character, life, and spirit, and immortality to the guardian care of that person whom he knew and loved so well, which is Jesus. I may believe in a person, yet I may never have committed anything to his charge. He may not wish that I should do so, nor be willing to accept any trust in my hands, but we must go that length with the Lord Jesus. This preacher who said that quote is saying, you know, I can, I can meet people, a businessman or a leader, and I can trust what he says without committing. That's okay. But often I think Christians have that same kind of thinking in our life. Right? As long as I know who Jesus Christ is, I'm going to still be working out that sense of commitment to him. And oftentimes, I'd, I don't think that we're as committed as Paul was. I had a pastor friend who said this about his own walk with the Lord. He goes, uh, you know, the, anal the analogy he's going to make is like playing poker, how you put chips up your sleeve. He goes, every time I thought I was like fully committed to the Lord, you know, praising God and hallelujah. It's like another couple chips fall out of my sleeve of things I was holding back from him. Every time I get to that point in my walk, I'm like, yes, Lord, everything for you. And the Lord says, how about that? 
And it's like, oh, not that one, Lord. Wait a second. Everything else, how about that? And the Lord's like, oh, no, how about this one and this one and this one? And you're like, oh. What's unique about Paul and probably why the Lord used him so incredibly was that he had clarity of purpose, prophesis. Let me read you a, a scripture from Romans 8 that almost mirrors what we're talking about here in 2 Timothy. Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for their, their good. Those who, are called in accord, those who are called according to his purpose, prophesis, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Kind of in that mirror to 2 Timothy, Paul's talking to the Romans about, hey, the Spirit helps us in your weakness, right? And in Timothy, we know that Timothy's crying. In Romans, he's talking about a spirit groaning under the weight of certain things. And it says that Spirit's interceding and that there's a purpose in it. Paul seems to be saying those same things to Timothy, which is why I believe he can jump from this fatherly pastoral, pastoral epistle to saying, hey, these challenges that you're facing are part of the bigger purpose. Be committed to the work of Jesus in this generation. Be committed to the gospel. You know there will be a cost to that, though. Win or lose, success or failure, be committed. My third point, it's interesting to think about, even the Apostle Paul had his failures. The Apostle Paul had his failures. Verse 15, it says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned against me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermon, Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome and searched for me earnestly and found me, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you all know well the service he rendered to us at Ephesus. So what Paul's saying, one of, one of the things that Paul seems to be suffering shame in is the fact that he was in chains, right? It talks about Onesiphorus as not being ashamed of the chains, right after it talks about two men who've left him, seemingly out of the shame of seeing him locked in jail over and over again. See, the, the Eastern culture is what, you know, some sociologists would call a pride-shame culture, right? If you failed at something, you carried a stigma with you. If you had certain social statuses, you had pride and were kind of elevated up higher than others. And though it has been up until recently different than the West, maybe some of those things are starting to creep in here now. 
What Paul's saying to Timothy is, hey, Timothy, you're crying. You know, we're crying. We don't know specifically why he's crying. Paul's probably trying to console him and saying, hey, these are some of my failures as well. We don't think of Paul that way as having to cope with failures. But he, he also says in verse 15, check this out, you're aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me. All who are in Asia. Now, I've met some people who've planted churches and those churches didn't flourish, or people who've tried to do restoration work and it didn't work out. I've never met a pastor who planted like a whole region full of churches who said, yeah, they all like, eh. Right? Paul, the great visionary leader of the first century Christianity, is like, hey, there's this whole place where I planted churches and it didn't take. Like, Timothy, whatever shame you're dealing with, at, you know, because right back in pride shame culture, talking to Timothy, hey, Timothy, your leader's in jail and people aren't following you. You sure you're following God well? From the results of what you're doing, it doesn't look like it's working out, right? Your mentor's in jail. He's going to die. Your church is dysfunctional or not growing or people are turning away. Shame to you. Shame to you. Paul's sharing in his own life, right? The end of his mission, the passing along of the torch. Like, hey, there's times we tried stuff and it didn't work. And that's okay. One of the things that I love about Christianity is when Jesus sent us out, he sends us to be shooters of men. No. (laughs) Teachers of men? No. Fishers of men. Fishers of men. Think about that. How does somebody catch a fish? There's a couple of ways, right? We nowadays use poles. So, right, you take a kid out to fish. He's just learning how to fish. You first teach him how to throw bait, right? Bait's easy. Get in the, he doesn't even need to cast it. You cast it for him, hand him the pole. There you go, kid, you're fishing, right? When he grows a little bit and gets some skill, all of a sudden he'll want to do lures. doesn't matter if lures work better, right? He just sees the thing going through the water, so he wants to do the lure, right? If bait doesn't work, you go to lures. Well, guess what? When you're older, I mean, really, it's more about like when you have money to buy this kind of stuff, you go fly fishing, right? Because <laughs> that's where you can catch some really awesome fish, And then, if that doesn't work, you get Carrie Bryant and you go out trolling, right? (laughs) Back in the day, they used nets. You want to throw a whole other, like, way to go fishing on there, there's nets. Jesus says, go be fishers of men. If something doesn't work, try something else. If something doesn't work, try something else. If you thought every time you cast a line in the water as a fisherman that you were going to catch a fish and were shamed that you pulled the line out of the water without a fish, you'd get a lot of shame, right? Because more often than not, like, let's be real, you're throwing that line into the water, and more often than not, it comes up without a fish. Catching the fish is more often the prize. You'll go out for a day, you'll throw that line in the water who knows how many times. You might come home with a fish or two. Jesus' analogy for how to reach the world is like fishing, right? We remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples After his resurrection, they were out fishing all night. How many fish did they catch? Right? They got skunked. And Jesus said, no, right over the side of your boat. Boom. What happens? You remember the story? He pulled up the nets. They were so full that what? Right. Right. 
Not every cast of the net is going to have a fish. Paul here is being totally honest about his life labors. I mean, imagine travel in the first century, going through a whole province on foot. Like, I got to be honest, those sandals probably weren't all that comfortable. Like, they didn't even have Crocs yet or anything, right? Like, we're, we're not talking about comfy, long-distance travel. I mean, if you're lucky, you get a beast of burden, right? But, I mean, what's traveling through the desert? It's not like they got truck stops with showers. Like, we're not talking about... We're talking about some activity here that has a loss to it and a cost to it. And Paul's saying, hey, I went on two of my missionary journeys, and there's this place dead center of my missionary journeys where I really wanted to affect. And now it seems, at least in connection to me, I can't tell if there was an effect. Could have brought him shame in the first century. But guess what? Is he encouraging Timothy to quit through all that? No. Saying, don't, don't be scared to try stuff. Don't be scared to risk. You know, we've ran through a couple candidates with failures on their record as part of the search team. Um, I'm going to read you some of these candidates' names. I'm going to admit last names. There's no confidentiality issues, but um, I think you'll catch on where I'm going with this. So we had candidate Joseph, big thinker, but he's kind of a braggart. He's really into, like, dream interpretation and had a prison record. Another one, David, most promising leader of all, but upon reference checks, had an affair with the neighbor's wife. Solomon, great preacher, critical thinker, but um, we could not get a parsonage big enough. (laughs) Noah, pastorate of 120 years and no converts. Hosea, maybe the most tender and compassionate pastor that, w- that we were able to reach out to, and we just couldn't handle his wife's occupation. There was Deborah, <coughs> female. Um, <laughs> John says he was a Baptist, but he definitely doesn't dress like one. Sleeps in the outdoors for months on end, weird diet, and constant clashing with denominational leaders. The one solid one we got, this guy named Judas. Solid references, don't worry, he's really conservative. Steady, plotting, has connections, knows how to handle money. Top-notch candidate, (laughs) top-notch. You might have noticed this is not our actual list of candidates. But it does show that God uses flawed people like you and me to accomplish great things. I mean, if you think about Paul's life in the, first test, in, the, in the early years of his ministry, having people who couldn't deny his message try to shame him or push him to the side of culture, I mean, that's what they would have done in the first century. Back then, I'm no doubt he would have lost like almost all his Twitter followers for what he was saying, right? And I wonder if we're starting to face some of that same thing today in our culture. Like, as we deal with a culture that doesn't know what to do with our message, and, and honestly, the, the real gospel, I don't mean where it's gone sideways, but the true gospel, like, you can't argue with that very well. There's a perfect God who loves you. He's going to forgive your sins. He's going to give you a resurrected life starting in this life that's renewed and transformed and born into Him. 
and that's going to carry on into heaven forever. That people are flawed, that we can't do it on ourselves. Human history has proven that. And we need a God to do that for us. And he loves you enough, he'll take your pain and suffering upon himself in order to do that. Who wants to argue with that? But because there's not a good argument, I wonder if we're starting to see some of the same things that Paul dealt with. I wonder if there's going to be a season of shame on the church for certain stances we take or trying to push us in a way that we're not able to access and influence culture to help them in their spiritual battles. On account of all this, how do we engage as we come into a season looking at how to embrace our next pastor? And I I can take notes straight out of Paul's letter here. One thing we can do well is love him well, right? I can affirm for myself there's a lot of areas of transition where I where people, even though they didn't know where we were going and, and the process is kind of nebulous and, and what's a summit, like how are we going to do all that? Like there's people who just supported that and said, hey, we want something new. Well, you know, one of them said, I'm keeping an eye on you, but I'll support you. So I go, ah, that's fair enough. <laughs> Love Gary. <laughs> fair enough. Let's, let's go for a walk, see what Je- walk with the Lord and see what Jesus has done. When the new guy gets here, we're going to want to love him well. We're going to want to embrace his family, make him feel like part of the family. Give him space to feel out like, hey, how does, how does he take his preaching style and make it digestible for us, figure out our Christianese and where we're at in our walk and what we can hear and not hear. Like That's going to be a process. Get to know one another. My, my first suggestion is we, we do it with love. My second suggestion is We serve the one, but not alone. We serve one, but not alone. We all have our own unique and individual calls on our life, but we're also commanded by God to forsake not the gathering together, right? Another way to put it, like church is a team sport. It's a team sport. You're not going to get very far on your own, and neither is your neighbor. We've done a lot with growing teams here and that mentality, a lot of great leaders. I put out an email this week recognizing all of the things we've been through in a year, and it's like an astounding list of things that we've been through. And like, I got to be totally frank with you, it's because there's a lot of awesome leaders in our community. People have sacrificed a lot of time, probably a lot of sleep, a fair amount of headache, just to get us to where we are. Don't lose that sense of team. And then the third, third thing we find in this letter, and we started moving that way with the summits, is to find and commit to your purpose, both personally and corporately, because God gives us a sense of both, that we each have an individual call on our life that we're going to live out, but we're also going to live out a call together as a community. Like how Christ identifies churches in in separate cities in the book of Revelation, right? Saying to each community corporately, here's what I hold for you and against you. The same is true of our churches today, that we have a corporate communal identity that we're to live out together. And then my last point, something that we should do when the new guy gets here, is allow for some trial and error, right? Like anything you do you want to get ahead in life, there's some risk. 
I mean, you can be too reckless, but you can always be too cautious as well. And you'll, you'll hear this language from the sleepy church, the, the what if this? You know, we're going to try an outreach, but what if this happens? What if people come here who think differently than us? Ooh. What if they come here and they have problems? Right? The what if this happens? As Paul's writing, right? Paul has failures. If Paul's got failures, like, everybody's got failures. You want to know how risky life is? Getting married is risky, right? Having children is risky. Investing is risky. Starting a business is risky. How risky is life? You're not going to get out of here alive. <laughs> That's how risky. <laughs> Imagine this, though. You have a kid who's learning how to walk. Learning how to walk is risky. Imagine that kid gets up a half a dozen, dozen, two dozen, four dozen times and falls over. And you said, no, kid, that's just too risky, too risky. Just stay down there. It's a lot safer. How's that going to work out, right? Sometimes the biggest risk of, all, risk of all is to not risk at all. You've got to risk things and try things to grow. Famous tech CEO said recently, as our world is changing ever the more quickly, the only strategy that is guaranteed to fail is one that doesn't take any risks. Any risks. One of America's early theologians, so, I mean, that's somebody outside of the church. Somebody, one of America's early theologians said this a couple years, a couple hundred years ago about our identity as Christians. Right? In talking about how Paul has walked through these risks, Timothy is facing challenges and going out on a limb at times, being a ship in the harbor is safe. But that's not what ships are built for. That's true about our identity in Jesus. I mean, do you ever think about this? Like how safe Jesus was on his throne up in heaven? Why come down to earth and learn how to walk? Go to school, deal with people? I mean, not even to mention the work on the cross, just everyday kind of stuff. Why? It's because he loved well. He loved well. He knew he would have to reach across a divide of sin and spiritual disconnection to grab hold of our lives and call us to Him. And we're all called as Christians to live a life just like that. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us. As we're a church discovering our identity, longing for a long-term leader, seeking You first and foremost, God, our prayer is that you help us to find your, our way, that you would guide us each and every step, that you would help us to be fishers of men, that your message of truth would ring out of this building and out of our mouth and our lips in a way that transforms our neighborhoods, our workplace, and ultimately is part of the transforming effort in our state and our country.
Lord, we're not ashamed of you. We need you. Help us to remember that every day, whether it's through trials and challenges or triumphs and victories. May they all be done in you. We lift these things up to you, Lord, in your precious and holy name. And God's people said, Amen.